This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 1.37, Second Chances, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan and experiencing some deja vu as we watch the movies. And I'm Nina, anime fan, but starting to worry that these movies will be a bit of a slog. Everyone says the next two are better. I hope you're right. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 97 patrons. Woo! So close to that 100 mark. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Scott S., Andy G., Andy T., Shenzo Wave, Sean L., Michael B., Zero Violet, and Amac. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord and bonus content, you can do so at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. Last week, we looked forward to the future of Gundam, and Nina speculated about what might come next, while I did my best not to give anything away about what actually comes next. This week, we invite a special guest to join us as we watch the first of the Gundam compilation movies, the movie that saved Mobile Suit Gundam, and it's called Mobile Suit Gundam. We also research and discuss a possible inspiration for Kika, Cats, and Let's, and the Demon Goof. But first, in honor of Gundam's 40th anniversary, NHK recently held a interview session with some of Gundam's original creators, including Tomino, Yasuhiko, Itano, and others. That interview was very helpfully translated by on Twitter, at wants to be a panda for her website, criesinnewtype.wordpress.com, which collects a number of her translations of interviews with anime figures. It is an essential website for anyone doing this kind of work, and I highly recommend it. And I extend MSB's thanks to at wants to be a panda. We will be sure to link to the blog in our show notes. You should definitely go check it out. This 40th anniversary interview contains a wealth of great stories and information about both Gundam as a show and the Gundam movies. So we're going to talk about it briefly before we go into talking about the movie itself. The first thing that struck me about the interview was how ambitious a project Mobile Suit Gundam was from the very start. Absolutely. From the get-go, they knew they wanted to do something totally new. They knew they wanted to do something that warranted a movie, which was like how you knew an anime was a success, as if it was good enough that they made a movie. This was right after Space Battleship Yamato had gotten its compilation movie. So that was the goal they were aiming for. The staff were mostly pretty young, I noticed, uh, in their 30s, with the exception of Itano, who was in his 20s. He was the young guy. (laughs) 
Uh, but yeah, no monster of the week, more of an ongoing narrative, a protagonist who was not this cool, upstanding superhero type. <laughs> but rather a gloomy mecha enthusiast with no friends, which I feel very called out right now. Yaz points out that they were all sort of bored of that kind of protagonist and that kind of story. They didn't want aliens to be sort of a convenient enemy. They wanted this to be about people fighting other people, about family conflict. And some of that even carried into why the voice actors got involved. Amro's voice actor mentions feeling as if he was in a bit of a rut, that he was doing the same kind of character over and over again. And he felt like Amuro as a character would be something totally new, something very different that he could do. He describes the roles he had been getting up to that point as the sort of roles where at some point you have to say, I'm getting really fired up right now. <laughs> and the Shar voice actor pointed out that this was one of his very first voice acting jobs and he was very intimidated by voice acting. He thought it was going to be very difficult. And then he saw the character art and read the description of Shar and got really interested in this specific character. <laughs> he got really fired up. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> so what was really striking about that is that this actually runs counter to the standard narrative of the creation of Gundam. Because the standard narrative is that Sunrise, the studio, the sponsors, everybody wanted a conventional giant robot show. And the auteur genius Tomino sneaks in through the back door and stealthily, under everyone's noses, created Gundam. But to hear the interview now, to hear everyone talking about it, it really sounds like everyone throughout all of Sunrise had determined that they needed to make their mark on the anime landscape somehow. They needed to do something different. They needed to do something ambitious. They needed to do something worthwhile. And that even at the level of the sponsors, sponsors were seeing that the giant robot craze of the early 70s was dying off. And they needed to do something different. And so while there may have been disagreements about what that something different was going to be, everybody involved in Gundam wanted it from the very beginning to be something special, something new. One of the pieces that I found most surprising was that talks for a movie started very shortly after they'd been cut. Uh, like two months after they told them, we've cut the show down, talks for a movie started. But this was not a, a full-fledged success. Initially, they were only going to give them one movie. And we will talk with our special guest a little more about how <laughs> Tomino managed to turn that situation to his advantage. They mentioned Tomino really getting dressed down by the sponsors, by the network, for the fact that the toys and books weren't selling, for the fact that the ratings were bad. He really shielded the rest of his staff from that. He took all of those... <laughs> nasty calls mm -hmm. and he would cheer himself up by reading fan mail but all the fan mail is from college kids <laughs> the series really didn't get popular until halfway through and it was surprising to the cast at one point suddenly the voice actors are leaving recording and there are you know groups of students from official fan clubs standing outside <laughs> waiting for autographs yeah there's an anecdote in the interview from amuro's voice actor where he says, I was approached by this guy who claimed to be the Gundam Fan Club Alliance president who wanted an interview with me. And I said, wait, not only is there one Gundam fan club, there are enough Gundam fan clubs that there is an alliance. One of my favorite tidbits from the whole interview is how it was sort of unusual to release anime soundtracks at the time as vinyl, but they did. 
for Gundam. They felt pretty strongly that even with the shorter pieces of music, it was a really good soundtrack and they should release it. And it did quite well, but it did better when they changed the cover art. Because the original cover art has the Gundam on it in sort of those bright primary colors. And it looks a little bit kiddish. Mm -hmm. When they changed it to being one of Yaz's paintings of Amuro in his normal suit, walking, holding his helmet in this dark red, very serious looking landscape. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that one sold even better. Well, not only sold better, for the record company that had put it out, it was the only thing that was selling. I'd love to learn more about this because while the success of the Bandai model kits gets a lot of credit for reinvigorating Gundam and justifying the movie, I suspect that the success of the soundtrack may have also played a big role in that. I could see that. And that might explain something that we noticed when we were watching the first movie, which is that a lot of the music is different. And they may have wanted to be able to sell a new Gundam soundtrack. the movie the soundtrack to people who already owned Gundam the show the soundtrack. The interview also confirmed a couple of things that we had suspected during our watch through of the show. The biggest one, I think, being that they did, in fact, have specific instructions from the sponsors, both to include the G-Fighter and to include the G-Fighter as much as possible in every episode. That was something that we had picked up on just watching it, and it does seem to have been true. I found it very ironic. Okawara mentions that he had a lot more fun designing enemy mechs because enemy mechs didn't need as much approval from the rest of the team or the sponsor because it was assumed that nobody would be buying those, that everybody (laughs) would be buying the hero mechs. You know, now we do Gunpla, and I look around at what Gunpla are popular, and... Uh, I, they were so, so wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just about broke my heart to read about Yaz first working himself into the hospital and then everyone else trying to pick up his work while he's there. And Tomino himself saying like, oh, the keyframes that I did for these episodes were terrible. Mm-hmm. Like everybody's keyframes were bad. We couldn't do anything <laughs> about it. Yeah. I mean. As the director, Tomino should not have been drawing those at all. No. Tomino was only drawing keyframes because the production was in such a dire state. The team was small, the budget was low, and Yasuhiko was in the hospital. And and then Yas saying he tried but ultimately couldn't make himself watch those episodes from when he was in the hospital because the quality is so bad, he just couldn't (laughs) take it. Yeah, it's like it's mimetic at this point that the original Gundam is full of those inconsistent animation moments, things that are off model, things where the scale is all out of whack, the proportions of the Gundam are weird, tiny heads and big shoulders or stretched out, whatever. But a lot of that is because Yasuhiko was so overworked on Gundam that he ended up in the hospital and it was his job to make sure that all of that stuff was consistent. I was surprised to hear, we had always known that the budgets were not good. That they were strapped and that they had too much to do and not enough people and not enough time. But one of them who worked more on the management side mentioned Sunrise did quite a bit of subcontracting and those were the projects that got more resources. Their in-house projects got shortchanged constantly. Mm-hmm. Well, it was the subcontracting work that kept the lights on. The way anime financing works is a little bit weird. And so subcontracting work brings in money right now. And if you do well on it, you get more of it, and that keeps the money coming in. When you have a project in-house like Gundam, 
you're going to get some money up front from the sponsors to make it happen, but any profit the studio is hoping to make is going to come down the line if it's successful, and it's going to come in the form of royalties. And then the biggest source of revenue is usually going to be, at least nowadays, sales of DVDs, sales of Blu-rays, things like that. But in 1979, they weren't selling DVDs or Blu-rays. So an in-house project like Gundam is going to be a much, much chancier prospect, and you're much less likely to make your money back. There were a couple of other moments in the interview that really stood out to me. I felt <laughs> moved all over again to hear that Tomino and Yaz and Itano uh, all cried when they wrote the Miharu story, or hmm. rather... Tomino storyboarded it and calls Yaz over. He says, I think this is really good. And they both get tear up over it. And then Itano, who, as we've mentioned before, was at the studio all hours of the day and night and <laughs> basically lived there, uh, went and looked at the storyboards after his superiors had left and cried over the Miharu story, that that was one that the staff found particularly moving. Mm -hmm. A little bit related to that, during the interview, Tomino again repeats something that he says quite often, and then you hear from a couple of the other people who were involved in Gundam very early on, that Gundam's earliest fan base was strikingly female. The numbers that get quoted in different interviews range from a third of all the early Gundam fans were women to more than 60% of early Gundam fans were women. And I think when they comment on that, you know, they're referring to the fact that the profile of fans for mecha anime at the time tended to be more men than women. Uh, so even 30% was quite striking. Yeah. And that's certainly the way it is today. And it's the way we expect it to have been when we look back on it. But after we published our piece on anime in Italy, Renato Ramonda got back in touch with us to point out one thing he had neglected to tell us earlier, which was that the fan base in Italy in those early years was uh, quite evenly distributed across genders. Uh, and that does seem to track with what Tomino is talking about here. And like I said, it's not just Tomino who says this. Other Gundam creators who worked on First Gundam do talk about the earliest fans seemingly being majority female. And you can find videos from some early fan meetups. It does seem like a pretty even mix which for a giant robot show in any era is pretty impressive. It really does seem like something happened in the 80s to shift the fan base demographics sharply towards the male-dominated Gundam fandom we are more familiar with today. I could speculate about that, and I probably will. But first, you had read some recent comments from Tomino where he complained that he felt certain Gundam shows had lost key elements. Yeah. <laughs> uh, had lost some essential something that was part of First Gundam and that helped it appeal to women and girls and that he thought was very important that he wanted to see continue in the series and had been lost. Yeah, Tomino complains from time to time that the people currently making Gundam are just making Gundam for people who already like Gundam. And that as long as you keep making shows like that, you're never going to make anything particularly good or particularly interesting, and your fan base is only going to get smaller. If our observations are correct and the fandom did shift away from that more even split, part of it is probably that, that the, the shows lost some element that made them more appealing to women and girls. Also possible that as you got more shoujo, 
being made into anime is you got more shows explicitly for young women. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot of competition. <laughs> yeah. I imagine the general expansion of anime. Naturally leads to a certain narrowing of focus. Yeah, and you get more niche pieces. Yeah. People are less concerned about super broad appeal and more concerned about like, you know, girls four to eight and then girls nine to 14 and boys nine to 14. Like, <laughs> yeah. Right. Let's finish our discussion of the interview with perhaps the most important thing revealed <laughs> in the interview. So important. Which is that scenario writer Matsuzaki Kenichi revealed the true origin of the Minofsky particle. So when Sunrise was initially planning Gundam, or what at the time was Freedom Fighter Gunboy, Yas describes it as essentially a meeting of all of the top creatives in a tiny room where they all just sat around saying, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? One of them actually made a sketch of all of them, <laughs> you know, laying around in this tatami room and sitting in this tatami room. All, everybody crammed in working. A tatami room, by the way, is a traditional Japanese room with the straw mat floors. It's worth checking out the interview just to see this drawing. It's really cool. And then Tomino comes into this gathering of people saying, what are we going to do? And he has the notes that he's prepared. And by notes, what they mean is a 30-page pre-written description of the setting, which he drops with a thwomp on the floor of this room. So Tomino was, from a very early point, totally invested in developing this setting. But he would then go to the scenario designers and he would say, I want this thing conceptually to be possible in the world. And then they would figure out how exactly to make it possible. And one of the things that they came up with was the Minofsky particle. He was essentially teasing Tomino. They're like, oh, I think I have a solution to all of our problems with the <laughs> setting. And I'm going to call it the Tominovsky particle. <laughs> uh, which got shortened to Minofsky. Tominovsky particle would have been a little too on the nose. Yeah. The, their, their solution to all of their sort of science fiction story difficulties was Tomino, basically. <laughs> and they just made it sound like a Russian scientist's name and then took the first two letters off so that no one would know. I love it. I love it so much. Before we bring in our guest, Angela, to discuss the movie on its own, in lieu of our regular recap, we are going to talk through the major changes that were made between the show and the movies. Now, this first movie covers the first core or the first third of the show from episode one through episode 13. I should preface this by noting that <laughs> when it came to sort of scene to scene determinations about whether something had or had not been <laughs> in the show, uh, Tom and I disagreed a lot, <laughs> uh, but not enough that we insisted on going back and watching the show again. <laughs> There were a lot of moments, I think it was usually me going, oh, this wasn't in the show, and Tom insisting that it was. <laughs> I don't know which of us was right. I don't think it really matters. <laughs> what you really want to hear on this podcast is the two of us arguing about whether a particular 30-second bit of animation was or was not in the original show, and then one of us going back to the tapes. Yeah. That sounds, sounds like riveting podcast entertainment. So fun for everyone involved. <laughs> there would be no hard feelings <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> we noticed right away that the color palette is deeper and richer. And this actually connects back to something from that interview we were just talking about. <laughs> I loved this. 
At the start of working on a series, the key artists have to determine what the color palette for the series is going to be. Yasuhiko was talking about how on Yamato, they had something like 250 colors to work with, whereas on Gundam, they had, after some bargaining, 82. That's something that had just never occurred to me before, but makes perfect sense from a production consistency perspective and from a managing costs perspective, not just because of the materials involved, you know, actual physical paints, but also in terms of keeping things simple so they can be animated more quickly Mm -hmm. that you would, you know, have set colors. I'm imagining, you know, all the hex codes for everything written down. And those, that's it. That's all the colors for the whole thing. Make do. And whenever stuff has to go out of house to other studios for additional work, you want every studio to be on the same page about what the color palette is and which colors they need to have in stock. One of the other overarching things that we noticed was much clearer and much richer sound. Yeah, layered sound. Sound effects over sound effects over music over talking. It felt weird (laughs) to notice that, but that tells you how different it is from the show, that it was noticeable to Mm -hmm. both of us. Oh, wow, all these sound effects for the machinery, sound effects for people moving through the space, sound effects for Amaro breathing during this really tense scene. Uh, In one or two scenes, it felt excessive. It felt a little showy without adding anything but for the most part i think it really made the movie feel more immersive so i do have to point out with regard to the sound that the soundtrack we were listening to which is on the blu-ray version of the movie is not the original soundtrack the original soundtrack from 1981 you basically can't get it anymore in 2000 there was a special edition release of the movies for which most of the original cast re-recorded their lines Some sound effects were changed, the music was rearranged, and in some cases, music was removed from certain scenes. All of this was done under the supervision of Tomino, so it is, you know, official, but it's not the original. Unfortunately, I'm not sure how one would go about finding a copy of the original. It would almost certainly not have English subtitles. So while we could listen to it, we couldn't actually watch it. A couple of people have asked us about the dub (laughs) as well. (laughs) The dub is a special kind of weird. The dub is notoriously bad among anime dubs. For some reason, Bright is British. Nobody can agree on the correct way to pronounce Gundam. 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 And it has essentially been scrubbed from history. (laughs) Yeah, the dub for the movie actually predates the dub for the show. And there are a couple of dubs like this where Bandai has decided that the quality is just too low and it will not be released again. You can still find it if you can find a VHS copy from uh, back in the day, but you won't find it on any DVDs or on any Blu-rays. Finally, throughout the whole movie, we noticed several types of alterations to the animation. Some original animation is still there. Absolutely, they reuse some of the original stuff. Well, and what we noticed is in a lot of scenes, they'll be reusing part of the scene. They clearly still have some cells that they thought were acceptable, but then other cells will be replaced. So maybe the main animation is the same, but the background is replaced, or the main animation is the same, but in the background, the animations of background characters have been changed. 
And finally, we have some entirely new animation. But even this gets broken up into two categories. Some of these are old scenes that have been entirely reanimated. Mm -hmm. So they look very familiar. We're watching and we're like, oh, we remember this happening, but... Didn't it, look quite as good. Yeah, this looks different. The, you know, was this how it was framed? Was this how it was constructed? Mm -hmm. And some of them are entirely new scenes. We get a handful, not a ton, I don't think, but we do get interspersed with the rest of the footage, some entirely new scenes mm -hmm. supplementing the old material. Quite a few of the truly new scenes are very, very, very short. They're a second or two inserted into other scenes to add additional richness and texture to the animation. The first one I noticed is in the very beginning of the movie, after the attack on Side 7 has begun, there's the first cut to Shar, to Shar's ship and what's going on there. And the first thing we see is a shot of just Shar's feet, and he's tapping one of his feet impatiently. It's not in the show. It adds a tremendous amount of physical characterization to Char in that moment. It is really good, and it goes by like... One of the first ones that really struck me was during... I don't think the evacuation of Side 7 had begun yet, although perhaps it had, but when everybody is rushing to shelters and or to get on the white base to escape, mm -hmm. there's a, a very brief shot of the streets of Side 7 crowded with cars which was totally new, was mm -hmm. not part of the original first episode, and gives you an additional sense. We get a couple of shots of crowds, but really hammers home the urgency <laughs> of the scene <laughs> and the number of people trying to get away. Mm -hmm. Before we talk about the major changes, a couple of notes about smaller changes. They did remove some of the silliness. The space mace is gone. The space poncho is gone. R.I.P. Space Poncho. <laughs> but there are some <laughs> moments that feel like added silliness to me. When Garma and Iselina are being all lovey-dovey and a soldier arrives to let Garma know that the white base is about to leave Xeon airspace, Iselina is just standing in the back during that whole scene with her mouth hanging open. <laughs> but just a little bit. She doesn't look surprised exactly. Her mouth is just sort of like O-shaped and no other part of her moves and it looks really odd. Yeah. And during the battle in Seattle, ha, the battle in Seattle, uh, one of the Zaku has an axe that for some reason is animated as orange and pink, hmm. which felt like an odd choice. A little bit. In a grimdark scene in a destroyed city. <laughs> Rather than just relying on Matilda's one mention of espers and a general slow burn on Amuro's supernatural abilities, we straight up get a reference to new types in this movie. And an explanation of what they are. <laughs> They're kind of like espers, but different. <laughs> Here's the special thing, and we will define it for you now. Yeah. I. This reminds me of an interview I read with Tomino recently, where he was talking about that ending part of Gundam and how he didn't have the idea for new types entirely fleshed out when they first got mentioned in uh, the duel in Texas. But then once the word was out there, it was all anybody wanted to know about. And he was stuck trying to figure out what it meant. So probably when these episodes were originally made, the word new type had not even been conceived, conceived yet. 
But now, with new types becoming so central to the fandom's interest in Gundam, it was essential that they be at least mentioned in the first movie. So now let's talk about the big changes. The movie includes episodes 1 and 2, that's the attack on side 7 and the escape therefrom, almost in their entirety. It also includes the last two episodes of this section, episodes 12 and 13, in their entirety, except that the order is switched, so that Amaro's trip home to see his mother happens before Garma's funeral and before Rambaral's attack. Episode 10, which Nina cleverly called the Battle in Seattle, is still intact, although it's sped up a little bit. In fact, quite a few sections of the movie feel sped up. However, episode 11, Iselina Strikes Back, is missing entirely. As are Garma Strikes, Core Fighters Escape, and Winds of War. Yeah, episodes 6 through 9, this is the white base arriving on Earth through to just before Garma's death, are all condensed into one segment. Additionally, episodes 3 through 5, this is the space escape section, so this is the attack on Shar and the Xeon supply ship, their brief internment on Luna 2, and re-entry to Earth are also all combined into one brief segment. These changes do significantly alter, if not the story, at least the tone, as well as the significance of certain characters like Garma, who really loses out on a lot of characterization and a lot of screen time. It also means that we don't actually have a scene of Captain Paolo dying because he's just wheeled off into the hospital on Luna 2 and never seen again. It removes a lot of the conflicts that got considerable time and attention during the show, presumably because they don't feel like they have the time to do them justice in the movies, but it does give a very different feeling to the whole thing, and we'll dig into that a bit more with Angela. Now, let's hear what someone totally new to Gundam thought about the movie. This week, we are joined by our friend Angela, who also cosplays as Girl Made of Jade. Find her on Insta. (laughs) Angela has probably more experience of anime than any of our other friends, I think, just in terms of the number of anime that she's watched. Uh, But she has never seen Gundam before, and she has not been listening to the podcast, which makes her the perfect person to watch the movies with us and let us know if they make sense. (laughs) Are they good? Are they terrible? (laughs) Are the favorite characters completely different than they were during the series? And can they stand on their own? So Nina mentioned to Angela that you have more experience with anime than practically anybody else we know. Maybe more than anybody else we know. How would you characterize the sorts of anime that you really love? What sort of anime fan are you? Oh gosh, I mean... I watch a pretty big variety that's generally PG, PG-13, so I don't really watch anything above the mature level. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, obviously a lot of Shonen Jump, like, manga and anime series. What sort of shows would that be? I mean, the biggest one is Boku no Hero Academia right now. Okay. But obviously One Piece. I was the One Piece Naruto Bleach <laughs> generation. Uh-huh. Um, it's interesting to see how it's changing now, but, you know. My generation had Gundam Wing and Dragon Ball. When I first heard about Naruto, I did think, like, what is this? What is this? Wait, how old were you when oh, you found I don't know. Naruto? That's... 
I don't know if you guys have heard the meme, Boruto's dad. Because the young kids are watching Boruto now, and they're just like, oh, have you heard about this? Is that this? the one that's about Naruto's kid? Yes. Okay. But the kids are just like, oh, did you know there's a new show? Or not a new <laughs> show, but a, another show called Naruto, and it's all about Boruto's dad. I'm just like, oh. my God. Oh. This is like when kids go into their parents' stash of, I guess it would be CDs now, but once upon a time it was records. And they're like, mom, dad, have you ever heard of Led Zeppelin? <laughs> I just discovered them for the first time. I think they're like an indie band. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> now that we have a, a little bit of a sense for where Angela is coming from, anime-wise, do you have any experience with other mecha shows? Do you have a, a sense of the mecha genre as a whole? It's weird because I feel like I fall in and out of love with mecha okay. a lot. I wasn't part of the Gundam Wing era, but then I think after that, it died down. Right now I'm watching, I don't know if you guys have heard of it, called Genlock. That's the Rooster Teeth one? Yes. Yeah, I, we've seen commercials. It looks good. It's very interesting. It's not what I thought, mm -hmm. um, but it's more like, I don't, know, I don't know how to explain it without giving spoilers away, but <laughs> definitely interesting to try. Okay. So you don't have any prejudices against Mecca. Yes. That's good. Although I've realized I haven't, or there's like the, the weird period, like the early 2000s where people were getting into anime, but like we didn't have access to anime. So there's a little gap <laughs> right. between my Mecca. Like I've been meaning to watch Gurren Lagann and um, I think the Big O or the Big, the big Zero. The Big O. The Big O. Yeah. Those two are ones I've been meaning to watch. Gurren Lagann is very good. I've heard. It's on We Netflix. haven't actually watched The Big O, but from everything I've seen about it, it's like Batman the Animated Series, but That's an why. anime. Yeah, it looks so cool. I'm just like, <laughs> I mean, it was on Adult Swim, so I was probably asleep at the time, but I'm old enough now. So my other background question is, have you watched any other anime from this era, from the 70s and early 80s? Rose of Versailles is maybe the most popular one from this era. Right. It's funny because like I've definitely seen like memes and gifs. <laughs> <laughs> Rose of Versailles, like you mm -hmm. can't, the roses are iconic. There's no way you haven't seen them. But otherwise, not much. So let's start on a positive note of what were some things you liked about it? There's a, there's a good chunk that I liked about it. Um, it's so interesting to watch this and see where current anime has gotten a lot of their themes from. Um, of course, there's the iconic, like, when something dramatic happens and, like, all the shading of the character, like, comes out <laughs> even more dramatically. <laughs> yeah, anime still does that. And it's just, like, it's so great to see. Um, hmm. It's also so nice to see. Obviously, they didn't have the technology we have currently, but like they make up for it with like the beautifully drawn backgrounds. Everything's like probably painted nicely. Some of that is different from the original. Okay. Uh, Tom and I spent a lot of time during this watch through trying to gauge what had been reanimated. Mm. <laughs> there are some scenes that are completely new animation. There are some scenes that are redos of old animation. And there are a couple of scenes where we think they must have still had all the cells and they only redid a few cells rather than the whole scene. Right. Okay. But yeah, the movies are considerably prettier animation than the show was in oh. a lot of in a lot of places. <laughs> well, the the show had a shoestring budget and happened several years earlier. Right. So separated by a big technology gap, as well as not having the time crunch mm -hmm. that uh, a weekly TV right. show has. Oh, one thing I found funny. Well, I guess it's not funny to the characters, I'm sure, but all the slapping. There is less <laughs> slapping in the movie no. than in the show. They cut some of the slaps. What? There were more? Yeah, Kai gets straight up decked at one point. <laughs> oh my God. 
gosh, that's so it's so bad to laugh at, but I, <laughs> I would love to watch that. <laughs> I guess that's one of the, the downsides of the movie is obviously since there's not enough time, you can't get to know a lot of the characters. Yeah, I felt that too, that really all of the focus has to be on Amuro. Yeah. And even then, it doesn't really sell him. him. Yeah. <laughs> In quite the same way. There are strongly divided opinions in the Gundam fandom about Amuro as a character. And Mm. I think a lot of that must come from the divide between people who have watched the TV series and people who have watched the movies. He really does come off very differently. What did you think in general about Amuro's character development and his psychological state? So I get how traumatizing this must be for a Uh 15-year-old. But I feel like he came off as such a whiny brat throughout. It's just... It's tough to like feel for him when everyone else his age is already like we're we're on it. We're I'm gonna be the pilot. I'm on it. Frau was like, yeah, I'm gonna help everybody on this ship. Sela was just like, yeah, I'm, I got this. <laughs> Amaro is just like, I don't want to be here. I get that, <laughs> but uh, you're the only one who can pilot this thing, and I think everyone's kind of relying on you right now. It was one of the things that I was most bothered by in the movie. Because in the show, they get to spend a lot more time on things. That's what I figured. They cut out a lot of the really traumatizing moments. Mm. And the upsetting things that did happen didn't really have room to breathe. Didn't really have room to sink in. Right. I mean, it makes sense when you're trying to compile everything together. You only have two hours, but it's the movie needed to breathe. And they combine a couple of times. They combine three or four or five different battles into one battle in the movie. Okay. They do that multiple times. And so in the show, you get this feeling that like, yeah, everybody's stepping up. But for most of them, stepping up means like working on the bridge mm-hmm. and, you know, going off shift. But for Amuro, stepping up means going out to fight every two hours. Right. It feels more earned. Mm-hmm. I'm stealing Nina's language here, which is what she said in the show, that it feels earned when he has those breakdowns. Okay. I think that was the thing, because I actually timed it. I think it was the first full half hour of the movie was a constant fight. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, is everyone okay? <laughs> like, <laughs> no, everyone is not okay. No one is like okay. One no one will ever be okay. This movie is one long battle. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, everyone's 15 years old. What's going on here? You want to know something crazy? That first quarter of the movie is just the first two episodes of the show pretty much straight. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> They're all messed up. And then the rest of the movie covers another 11 episodes. Woo! (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I see why it's obviously a very important battle, but wow, way to, that's one way to just go into a show. (laughs) Yeah. And Nina actually kind of undersells it because the first two episodes are there in almost their entirety. The last two episodes that get covered in the movie are there almost in their entirety. And then the rest of the movie covers the other nine episodes in a much abbreviated form. So then I'm curious because it actually, you know, I know one of the questions you guys have for me is, does it feel, does it make sense? Does it flow well? And I, I think it does flow really well, but okay. if they condense nine episodes, what am I missing? <laughs> <laughs> That's really impressive that it felt like it flowed really well, that they did, you know, cut that much content and still made it work. I mean, I can tell there were very obvious like, oh, let's cut to the scene immediately. But like, otherwise, you know, it felt fine. But am I missing anything big? (laughs) Well, yeah, of course. (laughs) Was there anything you found confusing (laughs) that maybe we can explain? 
So there wasn't, it wasn't confusing. Well, okay, actually, no, there were a couple. <laughs> <laughs> so the first one isn't confusing, but it was just kind of a shock how they left it. Kind of like they forgot about it. It was Amuro's dad.、Mm. Kind of just like, well, he's dead. And then no one talked about him ever again. I was just like, this, is, <laughs> this seems kind of important. Yeah. And in the show, it's quite similar to that, actually. Really? Yeah. Except for one scene that did get cut. A few episodes later, there's a bit where Amuro is talking to one of the refugees. And Amuro says something about, like, oh, I don't know if my father is alive or dead. My mother should still be on Earth somewhere. And that's really the only acknowledgement that we get of what happened to Amuro's dad. What's、well, interesting how they took some things out and then kept some things in.、Um, like, for some reason, there was the, the iconic beach episode of the anime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, the girls are just outside at this current time at the beach. Yep. <laughs> and it's only it's less than a minute, but they、yeah. still felt that it had to be, be kept. And I think that's one bit that they redrew. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of course. <laughs> I don't know if this will have struck you at all, but one of the things Tom and I noticed that was very different from the show was the quality of the audio. There's a lot of sound effects, there's a lot of layered noises. There are a couple of scenes where you have music and a couple of sound effects going at the same time. It's much more complex and high quality than in the show. In the、oh, show,、wow. it tended to be much simpler. But I'm remembering. Even just the scene where the captain of the white base is in the med bay、mm-hmm. and there's music playing, and there's also the beeping of,、uh, of like monitoring equipment in the med bay. And you can hear Frabo like cutting some tape with scissors, and there are people talking like, Wait, all at once. None of this was in the show? <laughs> no. Well, well, in the show, you have the people talking. <laughs> oh my goodness. And maybe the music? I don't remember. So, again, I haven't seen. Any late 70s, early 80s anime、mm-hmm. to compare to. But to me, I, I like one of the first things I noticed was like, oh, this is so plain. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of the sound, you mean?、Um, well, in terms of the music, I actually、mm. I went back and listened to some of it today, and I did hear more of the, the typical Asian 80s music、mm-hmm. seeping through. But like throughout the movie, I, like, I don't know, it was, it was boring. I can see that actually. The soundtrack for the show is really it's quite distinctive, at least a couple of its pieces, but a lot of that didn't make it into the movie, weirdly.、Oh. There's a lot of new music in the movie, and it's, it's a little bland.、Mm. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like the show had really great, really iconic music, and a lot of those songs just do not appear at all in the film. They also sped up the music in a couple of places. When they did reuse songs, they picked up the tempo significantly. Oh, wow. Which I guess the whole movie was moving very fast. So, <laughs> yeah, I assume that has to be what it was. They were just, the whole thing was going at a very frantic pace. The music of the movie had to keep up, but it was like exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> Who was your favorite character? Oh,、uh, if you guys look at my notes. It's funny because she barely shows up, but it's just like Matilda. My description of her is would marry in a heartbeat.、Um, <laughs> one of the things I said needed to be flushed out or was more Matilda.、Um, <laughs> I wrote in、uh, about the one hour mark, I was like, haha, Amaro, Matilda is out of your league.、Um, <laughs> she so is. <laughs> she really, really is. Yeah, it goes on like that. <laughs> is she a main character? Or not, obviously not main, but like. Spoilers. She's significant. Okay, that's all、and、I ask. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they kept most of her scenes.、Mm-hmm. I don't think they cut her at all. They actually added some new scenes of her. Oh. Yeah. 
So counterpoint, was there anything you particularly disliked? I mean, it's like I said, it's nice to look back on past things, but it's also you notice things from the 80s where it's just like, oh, Frau Bo is basically his mom. And it's just like, why is she, why does she have to take care of him like this? Nina is nodding vigorously. <laughs> this was one of Nina's biggest complaints early on in the podcast. I had a rant. I had a rant about Frabo. Oh, which episode? I want to listen. <laughs> I screamed in my notes at one point where it's just like, when I was fed up with Amuro, I was just like, yes, just give Frabo the Gundam. She clearly knows how to handle things. Just give her the Gundam. Yeah, there's an alternate universe where Frabo got the Gundam right there, and it probably worked out better for everyone. <laughs> Another thing, I get that his death starts, obviously, the bigger plot, but with Garma, I kind of felt like he wasn't necessary, or like a lot of his scenes were just, okay, he's this rich white kid who has a fiance, he goes off to war, and then he dies. Okay, cool. I didn't get to know him well enough to like feel anything for him when he died. Yeah, his episodes in particular got shortchanged. There's a series of four or five episodes that he's in where he is trying to catch the white base on the Gundam, and those got combined into maybe one section of the movie. <laughs> most of most of the content of those episodes disappeared. Mm -hmm. There's also some stuff that happens in the show with his fiance after he dies that they oh, cut okay. out of the movie that oh, adds okay. additional significance to him as a character. Yeah, Nina's right that Garma definitely got shortchanged in the movies. He does have quite a few episodes where he is like the enemy in the same way that Shar is the enemy at the beginning. Garma becomes the enemy for the middle section. But he is really a character that we get to know after he dies mm. in the ways that everybody like his siblings and his fiance deal with his death. In the show, there's a whole episode that got cut out where after Garma dies, Isalina, his fiance, goes to a Xeon base and talks a bunch of his old soldiers into joining her to try to get revenge against the white base. Dang. Okay. During which Amuro like witnesses her death and she's this like pretty blonde civilian woman. Uh, and she's like pointing a gun at him and swearing revenge. And then she, it's stupid, she faints and she falls off the top of the plane and she cracks oh. her head on the ground and dies. Um, so <laughs> Amuro watches all of that happen and it's like, that's super traumatic for him. Yeah, I can imagine. And that happens right before he goes home to his mom. Oh. There's the added part that this is really the first time that he has realized that he's even thought about like, oh, the people I'm killing have families mm -hmm. and people who care about them. And even though I think I'm doing the right thing, there are people who are going to hate me for what I'm doing. Right. And he hasn't really even considered that before. And that's before he has his big breakdown. Mm -hmm. We have to kind of do a mea culpa here because when we were talking about these episodes, Nina and I, we sort of felt like the Iselina episode was disposable. But now talking to Angela, hearing her reaction to the show without it, maybe we have to walk that back and acknowledge the importance of the Iselina episode. Sorry, Iselina. <laughs> Sorry, Garma. You Nazi. <laughs> but I guess that brings me back to the question I haven't asked yet. But um, Bashar is obviously the bad guy, but he's on the bad guy's side, but then he kills the bad guy's son. So then... Do you feel intrigued by that? Yes, I'm very intrigued. Mission accomplished. <laughs> Did it come as a total surprise to you when that happened? Hmm. Yes and no, because there was that one scene at the ball where, like, he's looking mysteriously out the window, and I'm just <laughs> like, what does this mean? But then it also, 
came so suddenly. It was like, oh, okay, I guess that's what that means. <laughs> and it was like, oh, okay, he's dead. I guess we're moving on now. <laughs> in the show, in some of those episodes that we mentioned getting mostly removed, there are a bunch of near misses where uh, Char contrives for accidents to happen that almost kill Garma. Oh, There's wow. like several <laughs> of them. And Garma manages to survive all of these events until this last one. Mm-hmm. So were they actually friends or? What do you think their relationship was? I'd like to think they were friends, but uh, I don't know. You don't go killing your friend off like that that easily. I mean, do you not? I mean, that wouldn't be good for my image. <laughs> well, did you get any sense of any kind of tension between the two of them? I remember, I think one of the first lines that um, Garma said was like, what is it? He was the best at, at school or something like mm-hmm. that? Oh, but they were competitors. <laughs> mm-hmm. They are a um, very popular shipping couple. Oh. Yeah. Sharma. See, I feel like if I watched the episodes and actually saw them communicate more, maybe. Not even after the shower scene. Oh my gosh, I forgot about that. I'd I mean- be honored to lend you a hand. <laughs> Don't laugh at me in front of the men. Yeah, but then but then he kills him. Feelings are complicated. <laughs> it has something to do with Garma's dad. I, I figured. Always kill the the weakest link. Snap. Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Garma. So I guess one of the other big complaints I have, I said it already before, but how we don't get to meet a lot of the characters or flush them out, especially the three guys who just happened to get on the ship. Um, I got two of their names, uh, Hayato and Kai. And I think one of them's the small dude and one of them's the emo dude. Um, That's okay. We accept it. We accept that Kai is the emo dude. (laughs) And then there was someone else who was always with Hayato because they were like big and small, I assume, which is why they were always together. Is it Ryu? The the big guy, right? The one who's kind of anime black? I mean, I didn't even notice that. (laughs) But he was the biggest character, so I'm assuming it's that one. Okay. Yeah. That's him. Do they not say his name? Do they not? I think they might not ever actually name Ryu in the movie. That's so weird. Wait. They have to Bright, have. Bright must say it at some point. Bright must say it when Ryu is out in the gun tank. Or in the core fighter. The point is, he clearly got shortchanged. Yeah, Tom and I are pretty convinced that in a couple of the scenes, they drew Ryu skinnier than they did in the show. So it was kind of a thing in disposable mecha shows you've got your like handsome muscular hero type and then you've got the short comic relief guy and then you've got the kind of fat comic relief guy Mm. so that trio is like a standard type okay for shows from this era and so maybe those were the character designs they were comfortable with Mm. going into it and then coming out of the show going into the movie they wanted to be a little bit more serious there's a couple of other of those sort of Uh, 70s robot anime silliness bits that get cut like there's a whole scene in the show in space where the Gundam has like a flail like a big spiky mace on the end of a chain that Mm -hmm. it swings around in space in an extremely implausible kind of way that got cut completely no space mace no space mace and no space poncho 
Poncho. Yeah, during re-entry in the show, the, I I assume they had to cut this because they thought it wasn't like realistic enough. But in the show, when the Gundam is doing its like re-entry unassisted, Amuro is like paging through the manual and it's like re-entry procedure, re-entry procedure. Oh, here it is. And the Gundam reaches into its utility belt and pulls out this thin transparent film that's like a poncho that goes over the Gundam's torso. And this film is like heat proof or something. And in the movie, they do like a cooling gel. Right. Disappointing. <laughs> we really liked the Space Poncho. Based on the movie, what is your perception of the relationship between like the Federation command, the sort of officers in charge of the Federation forces, and the white base? Kind of confusing. Because at the beginning, they were just, like, you know, passing them along, like, oh, yeah, yeah, go over here. It'll totally be safe over there. And then they realize, oh, they have a weapon that we can use. But then they're just like, you know what? Just keep going unassisted for a little while longer. <laughs> but then, and, and uh, yeah, they, it's it's just like, if this is, like, your number one weapon, shouldn't you be, I don't know, assisting or protecting this weapon? <laughs> In the show, that relationship is very antagonistic almost from the beginning. Oh, wow. Uh, when they show up at Luna 2, that asteroid base, they all get threatened with court-martial for for taking Federation technology without permission, even though in doing so they saved it from falling into Zeon's hands. Mm -hmm. uh, they basically get told that, well, you're doing a pretty good job and you're coming up with some interesting <laughs> tactics because you don't know any better. Uh, we're just going to let you do your thing uh, and God. we'll let you know when we need you. <laughs> In that scene between Bright and Matilda that uh, Amaro tries to join and is told to go back to bed. Oh, uh -huh. uh, during that scene in the show, Matilda's like, we want you to keep fighting. You're doing really well. And amateurs come up with such like creative ideas. And Bright says, oh, so you're just using us as guinea pigs? And Matilda says, uh-huh. Dang. She's like the only sympathetic Federation officer. Okay. And given that she's happy to let them keep being guinea pigs, she's not that sympathetic. Right, right. The other big conflict they remove, and this came up because, <laughs> as with all of our guests, we gave Angela one of our Frabo and the Orphans t-shirts. And she was like, wait, are the orphans important? <laughs> oh, oh, the orphans. Oh no! What is this reaction? <laughs> no, it's just, they are, they're cute. I like them. It's it's sad that they don't seem important. I don't know. I'm at the point where I'm just like, what are these kids doing here? <laughs> well, because in the movie, for those of you who haven't watched it yet, uh, they gloss over a lot of the conflict around having refugees on board. Mm. In the show, there's all this stress because, well, the refugees need to eat, and so the food supplies are low, and some of the refugees want to go back to Side 7, or they want to go to different places on Earth, or they want to be set down right now, immediately, even though they're in the middle of enemy territory. Uh, at one point, they do a sit-in in the bridge. At one point, they take hostages, actually. Oh. Yeah, I think the orphans are the hostages, them and Fra, until finally, at one point, <laughs> they... Uh, they get rid of the refugees on the ship. Um, well, get rid of they. they <laughs> until until they find. <laughs> Bye. Each and every one of the refugees. <laughs> they, <laughs> until they finally set down in a reasonably safe location and let all the refugees off. I got really mad at this point because nobody offered to take the kids. 
Oh my gosh. All I those, even think all about those that. grown up refugees were just like, all right, peace out. We're going to leave these little orphans with you guys. Yeah, the orphans combined with the refugees really create this dichotomy between all of these full-grown adults who are doing nothing useful. They're Mm -hmm. just like sitting around and complaining. And then all of these children from 19-year-old Bright, who is the oldest of them, on down to even Kika, Katz, and Letts, the the three orphans, who are like four through six, I think, who are like they are working on the ship. Mm -hmm. All the kids are working and all the adults are just sitting around kvetching. So like- the show really uses the orphans to make that point that like even these tiny little kids are doing their part. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who have not watched the movie, the movie basically has some Federation officers say like, oh, we'll take some of the refugees. I think Matilda takes some like they're sort of hand waved away as being dealt with by other people. Did you feel like the way this movie ended, you would have been satisfied if that was the end of it? So actually, one of the notes I took down was that I feel like it should have ended earlier. Oh, okay. Because I feel like they switched to like a new arc or like the beginning of a new arc. Mm -hmm. And then I was just like, who are these people? And then it (laughs) ended. And I was like, okay, I guess that's that. Where would you have ended it? (laughs) I guess right before the new people showed up. So I think this movie is about two hours. So I think like around 140, 145. Okay. Would you have included the funeral scene at the end? Yes. Oh, that would have been a really like ominous ending. <laughs> yeah. And with all of them chanting their Nazi yeah. rally slogans. Yeah. That would have been, uh, that would have been chilling. <laughs> During the funeral scene, there are some banners hanging over the dais where the, the Zabi family are. Mm-hmm. And they're like Xeon banners. But they're not the same ones from the show. And in fact, they look a whole lot like the Rising Sun emblem from the Japanese Imperial Army. I did not catch that at all. Oh, that's interesting and also very scary. Right? (laughs) It's also one thing I noticed was how big they drew the bad guys. Oh, yeah. They are all like physically imposing, except Garma. Yeah. Poor little Garma. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's okay. Yeah. I called that ending pretty not super early on but a a while in because they changed the order of some of the events oh compared to what happened in the show Mm -hmm. and i was thinking to myself well they can't skip the funeral completely because it's really important maybe they're going to save it for the end Mm. so Uh, and in the show what nina alluded to is that the whole sequence with amuro and his mom that happens after the funeral not before oh okay I want to return to the question I asked at the beginning of this, which is, if it had ended where it ended, and that had been the end of it, there had been no more Gundam after that, would you have felt satisfied by that? Probably not. (laughs) Well, I think one of the big issues I have with this movie is that I actually don't know what the bad guys are working at. Um, The Principality of Xeon? That's right. It's just like, here are the bad guys, here are the good guys. Why are they fighting? What's, What's the main goal for everybody here? So I I would like to get answers on that. So I ask this question because the original TV show was not popular when it was on the air. It got abysmal ratings. It got canceled. They ended up getting the funding to make this movie, but they didn't get funding to make all three movies. They got funding to make one movie, which is why this movie is called Mobile Suit Gundam. And then it it doesn't have a subtitle. (laughs) And the story the director tells is that it was only because this movie did so well that they got the funding to make the additional movies. Oh, 
okay. And so he sort of, when the studio approached him to say, can you make a movie out of Gundam? He said, oh, I mean, maybe, uh, I guess I'll try, Mm -hmm. but I'm sure I can't adapt all of it. I can only adapt a little piece of it into one movie. And that was his way of like getting them to give him the time to do (laughs) the full three movies. I mean, I can't even imagine them making, what is it, how many episodes into one whole movie? 43. Good Lord. (laughs) One last question. Mm -hmm. At one point during the movie, they mention something called a new type. It's like a kind of esper, but not quite. Right. What do you think about that? I forgot about that. Apparently not very much. (laughs) Didn't make an impression. Well, they just said it so like offhanded and then it was like the next scene. So I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'll find out what happens (laughs) next time. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, I'm I'm very curious, but um, I was given nothing else. So I I just assumed nothing else was going to (laughs) happen. All right. Before we end, I wanted you to read off your descriptions of the characters. Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, sure. <laughs> I mean, I didn't like Amuro as much, so I just had him down as MC, main character. Um, Frabo, I had female lead, deserves better. <laughs> um, she really does. <laughs> Char, I have random bad guy, obvious sister complex, which um, this is just a reference from the other Gundam shows that I've watched. Um, he always, the blonde hair guy always has a sister complex. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> um, You're cheating. <laughs> You're reading ahead in the book. Uh, we have Bright, who I wrote, doesn't get paid enough. Say hello. I, kind of embarrassing. Um, I just said, hello, nurse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mirai, I have the Parks and Rec, like, meme, you've done nothing wrong. Um <laughs> Matilda, I have one Mary in a heartbeat, and then Hayato, Kai, and Ryu. I would just have those guys. Oh. I hope I get to meet them more, but otherwise, they're just those people in the background. Okay. Top notch evaluations of those characters. <laughs> It was pointed out to us by patron Susan G that the orphans, Kika, Cats, and Let's could be based on or inspired by characters from a long-running series of comics, Cats and Jammer Kids. Cats and Jammer means cat's whale, like caterwaul, and so discordant sound. It's sometimes used to indicate a general state of depression or bewilderment. It's also been used as a term for a hangover or contrition after a failed endeavor. So, hangover. <laughs> This comic ran from 1897 until 2006 and is still in syndication. It was created by Rudolf Dirks, who was the first cartoonist to depict dialogue using speech balloons. It was inspired by an earlier story, Max and Moritz, which was written in the 1860s by Wilhelm Busch. Although this is more of a classic fairy tale kind of story, in Max and Moritz, the pranksters are caught and quote-unquote grotesquely and humorously put to death. Uh, In the process of trying to trick a farmer, they are ground into meal and fed to his ducks. The entire story is told in rhyming couplets. That's like the most fairy tale fairy tale. (laughs) 
Max and Moritz from the conclusion. In the village not a word, not a sign of grief was heard. Widow Tibbets, speaking low, said, I thought it would be so. None but self, cried Bach, to blame. Mischief is not life's true aim. Then said gravelly teacher Lample, There again is an example. To be sure, bad thing for youth, said the baker, a sweet tooth. Even uncle says, good folks, see what comes of stupid jokes. But the honest farmer, guy, what concern is that to I? Through the place, in short, there went one wide murmur of content. God be praised, the town is free from this great rascality. (laughs) Thank goodness those kids fed the ducks. Also, perhaps of relevance, Max and Moritz was the first original foreign children's book published in Japan in 1887. In Cats and Jammer Kids, there were originally three brothers, but it got cut down to two, a set of twins, in later strips. Uh, The twins' names are Hans and Fritz. They are constantly rebelling against authority and pulling pranks. And additional characters were added later, including a girl named Lena. Who is blonde, by the way. Only the children are referred to by name. Everyone else is by title. Mama, the captain, their inspector, who is a truant officer. The kids are described in one source, encyclopedia.com, as dedicated to attacking conformity, pomposity, adult authority, and the traditional values held by society. They are said to combine the best qualities of conmen, burglars, guerrilla warriors, and jesters. (laughs) They elevate prankery to a fine art. So they're pranksters and they're troublemakers, but they're very capable. They even have their own TV Tropes page, which adds that they are karmic tricksters. Over the years, Hans and Fritz developed a very strong karmic streak. While they remained mischief makers and would prank, trick, and mock just about everyone, more and more it became clear that their worst pranks and the ones that they most often got away with were against unreasonable authority figures and often done as revenge for unfair treatment. Hmm. In the show, we have cats, which we know it's short for katsu, but katz, K-A-T-Z, is also a common German Ashkenazi Jewish name. Kika is a German Finnish name, and Letz is another German surname. Uh, More importantly, they're all (laughs) German-sounding, because the actual comic was created by an American for American papers, and the kids, along with the other central characters, spoke in a sort of uh, vaudeville Dutch. (laughs) It is a mix of German and English. There's a lot of mits instead of wits, and v's where w's ought to go, and guts instead of good. I think it's the kind of thing you still see today in English language work where they want to indicate a character is German or has a strong German accent, and they stick with words that are either close enough to spoken English now or have become part of common knowledge in a way (laughs) (laughs) to convey that without having to subtitle or use two languages. And it's worth remembering that there is actually some authenticity to that sort of pseudo-German accent in the comics. Rudolf Dirks was born in Germany. He was born in Schleswig-Holstein in the 1870s, and he moved to the U.S. when he was around seven. So he would have grown up in German immigrant communities. Speaking German for the most part, or or like a a German-English hybrid. Exactly. (laughs) The Cats and Jammer Kids had a handful of live-action silent shorts back in the day and animated silent shorts, but it has been almost exclusively a comic. 
There was also at one point a break with the paper, and this resulted in it splitting into two comics that were basically identical. (laughs) (laughs) But Cats and Jammer Kids was the first one and the most famous. I did not find any particular evidence that the comics or any of the silent shorts made it to Japan, but it's not really difficult to imagine that they would, especially since we know Max and Moritz made its way. We do know that many of the early mangaka, manga creators, and anime creators were influenced by Western works. Disney comes up a lot, but certainly from other foreign comics and and animation as well. The mangaka Kitazawa Rakuten, who is regarded by many to be the father of manga, is said to have been influenced by, among other Western comics, the Cats and Jammer Kids. Very cool. Did he create any manga that we would know? He was creating around the like the turn of the century. Ah, okay. Very early. Yeah. Some political stuff. He created Tonda Haneko Jo, which was the first manga to include a female protagonist. Okay. I've never heard of it. He created Chame to Dekobo, a story about two mischievous boys, which is said to be a counterpart to the Cats and Jammer Kids, but set (laughs) in Japan, which was also one of the very first examples of character merchandising in Japan. Oh, wow. The mischievous boys were turned into dolls and put on playing cards. It's also worth pointing out this whole anti-establishment attitude is very much in keeping with a lot of what we talked about early on in Gundam. You know, this is a show being created at a time where there is a lot of youthful rebellion. There is a lot of youthful rejection of the order and the strictures put on them by adults, by society. So it's a good place to draw inspiration from. Thank you, Susan G. Mobile Suit Gundam The Movie ends with the first appearance of Ramba Rall and his terrifying new mobile suit, the Goof. It retains much of the Zaku's design, but adds more sharp edges, spikes on the shoulders, and more integrated weapons. It's got guns in its fingers, and an electrically charged whip called the Heat Rod in its forearm. But it maybe retains a little bit too much of the Zaku's design to really stand out. And if Rambaral shouting, This is no Zaku, boy, had not become one of Gundam's most famous memes, we would probably all be pretty comfortable calling it the Blue Zaku. Spiky Blue Zaku. Thank you very much. (laughs) So why does it look like a Zaku? And why does it look different in those couple of spots where it does look different? There are some practical production reasons for both, of course. It's easier to draw what you've already drawn, and it's easier to make toys if the molds don't have to change that much. But on the other hand, add enough differences, and you can sell a goof toy to the kids who already bought the Zaku toy. Of course, Gundam fans have long since proved that they are happy to buy 12 different versions of the Zaku, but nobody could have predicted that back in 1979. Still, The mere fact that there were practical reasons to make some changes, but not too many, didn't determine what those changes were going to be. That was still a matter of art. So let's talk about what was changed and why. And as I do this, I am starting from the assumption that the goof cannot be considered alone. The goof is one half of a pair with a particular Zaku, 
Char's custom red zaku. The colors convey everything. Just like the primary colors on the Gundam tell us that it is a special heroic machine, and just as the more muted uniform colors of the gun cannon and gun tank tell us that they are secondary, the ordinary Zaku, painted in a drab military green, looks like a soldier, albeit a 74-ton, 18-meter-tall soldier. The bright red on Char's Zaku and the deep azure of the goof make them and not heroes precisely, but, and bear with me on this, demons. And that's not even considering that both of them have horns, by which I mean the commander antennae. The goof, besides being blue, also has two spiked pauldrons, rather than the Zaku's pauldron and shield combination, suggesting a more aggressive character. It also has those curving shoulder spikes that look more like the horns on cattle or the tusks on a boar than anything else. Again, aggression. It has a gun in its left hand, which both mimics the Vulcan cannons built into the Gundam's head and emphasizes that aggressive nature. The Zaku picks up a gun. The goof is a gun. Then there's that heat rod, built right into the goof's forearm. The heat rod is a unique weapon in Gundam. It's wielded alternately like a whip or a cudgel, and with its powerful electric charge, it can entangle and disable enemy mobile suits. And one of the very first things it does in the show is to wrap around and destroy the Gundam's bazooka. This is not a killing weapon. It is a controlling and disarming weapon. Like an overseer's whip or a police cudgel or a baton, it is a weapon that conveys and reinforces its wielder's authority and punishes any who resist that authority. And you may be surprised to learn that the heat rod has its own historical parallel in a weapon called kanamuchi or tetsuben, sometimes called iron whips or iron rods in English. Kanamuchi are thin, flexible lengths of iron, roughly the length of a sword, although some get as long as 39 inches. They weren't as flexible as the heat rod is, but they were a lot more flexible than you would expect when you hear them described as iron rods. If you see them in photographs, they look quite a bit like simple canes. But these were serious weapons, and they were markers of authority for the Edo-era police who carried them. Being too light to bludgeon and too dull to cut, although like whips they could still slash through clothing and split skin, these were lightning-fast, non-lethal weapons. Extremely painful, and could be used to strike to the arms, wrists, or hands in order to disarm an opponent. Just as the goof many times disarms the Gundam. Some of these would even have a whistle built into the rod, so as you swung it through the air, it would shriek. I feel as if I've seen references to that before. They actually show up in a lot of photographs. They were quite common back in the day. Before they were adopted by the Edo-era police, they would be used by samurai whenever they were required to do non-lethal work or in places where they weren't allowed to carry swords. Of course, most of them were just simple tapered rods of iron, and so they weren't considered important and didn't survive. A handful fancier ones would be decorated to resemble a bamboo stalk, so that is to say, like, segmented like bamboo. Kind of like the way the heat rod looks. And I'll note here that one of my sources pointed to a possible connection between the kanamuchi and similar weapons used by police in ancient China, with names that translate to things like hard whip, whip rod, whip staff, and so on. But I couldn't find any good information establishing a solid connection, and there's precious little in English about those early uh, Chinese weapons, so I wasn't able to get very far with that. 
However, the Kanemuchi has what might be an ancestor or perhaps just a cousin in Japan in the battlefield weapon Kanabo, or War Club. Where the Kanemuchi was thin and light and ideal for quick, non-lethal strikes, the Kanabo was thick and heavy, made for crushing armor, and whatever was unlucky enough to be under that armor. It was a real weapon, but given the brutal nature of it, as well as its sometimes staggering size and weight, it is little surprise that the Kanabo also carved out a place for itself in Japanese folklore, where it became the principal weapon wielded by that massive humanoid demon ogre called Oni. Oni are depicted lots of different kinds of ways, both in appearance and in personality, but they are almost always ferocious-looking giants. They also have horns, one in the center of the forehead, two curving horns on either side, or more. And they can have as many as three eyes, or as few as a single mono-eye that takes up most <laughs> of their face. Is it sounding familiar yet? No, but I kept my eyes closed the whole show, so... <laughs> Another distinct feature of every Oni is a striking, inhuman skin color. The most common colors for those giant warrior demons? Red, blue, and to a lesser degree, green. So now imagine a blue Oni with a pair of upward curving horns, a single eye set in its face, and in one hand an iron club that it wields as easily as a human would wield an iron whip. Everything about it conveys aggression and authority. And now we remember Rambaral's nickname, the Blue Giant. Now I'm just thinking about the part of Tokyo Godfathers where one of the characters is telling the story of the red oni and the blue oni. It's a classic story. If you're not familiar, the story of the Red Oni and the Blue Oni is about two of these demons. This was written during a period when the reputation of the Oni was being rehabilitated a little bit. <laughs> they were becoming a little less demonic. And in the story, the Red Oni wants nothing more than to be friends with the human children. But the human children are terrified of this huge cannibalistic monster. <laughs> so they don't want to play with him. So the Blue Oni, who is a good friend to the Red Oni, comes up with a plan and they stage a little trickery, wherein the blue oni threatens the children, and then the red oni arrives and pretends to save the children from the blue oni. They fight, and the red oni drives off the blue oni. The children, grateful at their miraculous rescue by this powerful defender, befriend the red oni, and he is accepted into their society. The blue oni, however, in order to ensure that the deception is never uncovered, Leaves forever. <laughs> this story was written in a time when Japanese society was changing very dramatically. Society was becoming industrialized and it was creating a lot of displacements within the uh, social order. And the author hoped that by showing that even these demons can have human-like feelings, it would help to encourage feelings of like care and compassion for other people. That's really sweet. It's such a sad story. I it was really fake is. crying before, but it is very sad. Yeah. But then three homeless people find the blue oni <laughs> on Christmas Eve. No, the blue oni is one of the homeless people. Anyway, <laughs> if you haven't seen Tokyo Godfathers... It is one of Nina's very favorite movies. I know we've talked about Satoshi Kon before, but go check it out. 10 out of 10. Best Christmas movie. <laughs> Next time on episode 1.38, Zeon Strikes Back. Mobile Suit Gundam movie number two, Soldiers of Sorrow. 
Things that definitely were not in the show. Yeah, they were. No, they weren't. They were. <laughs> they were not. Do you want to go back and watch it? <laughs> <laughs> Weird Gundam names, calendars, and the anime debut of someone famous before he was famous. Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all of the podcast things. Subscribe, share, review, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown for free on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Join us on Patreon for great bonus content, access to the MSB Discord, and to support the podcast. Just go to GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. You can follow us on Twitter at GundamPodcast, on Instagram at GundamPodcast, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast. And you can check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all our episodes, show notes, and more. Plus, you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Garma was just a poor lamb. On any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Those might be horns. It might be a horny blue Zaku. Proud of that, aren't you? Are you proud of it? No. (laughs) (laughs) Then neither am I. You looked for a second there like you had a question or a quibble or a comment. No, I was thinking about something else. Mm. Sorry. Momentarily distracted. (laughs) I was thinking about when in Tokyo Godfathers they tell the story of the red demon and the blue demon. Oh, I'm going there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to propose that we finish the uh, discussion of the interview by talking about Minovsky particles. Yes! Okay. Is that also what you were going to say? Yes. We'll be launching a sub-series of the podcast, 12 episodes, during which we analyze each and every new bit of animation in the movies. We will get to Zeta sometime in 2020. That's not funny. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing. Not you, car. Me, me. <laughs> Silence, car. Crap, lasers. <laughs> crab battle. <laughs> if There's... you remember crab battle from, what was it on, Newgrounds? <laughs> we are contemporaries. Eventually, there is going to be a crab-shaped mobile suit called the Cancer. <gasps> it will be in battles. Does it have a knife? Uh... No, I don't think so. It might. I might need to stage a diorama of it (laughs) with a mobile suit that has a blade and and put little, like, printout subtitle cards underneath. It took my knife! (laughs) I know exactly which mobile suit you should use, too. (laughs) So, Bandai, you have until we get to Gundam Wing to make a cancer gunpla. Make it happen. So, Char is the iconic Gundam, blonde hair, white mask. Char. Char, sorry. 
Not Charmander. Char. <laughs> More like Charmander. Charmander. So I was like, oh, rivalry, 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 rivalry. <laughs> Ooh, rivalry, rivalry. Oh my gosh, get the word. <laughs> I can't English. And if you're curious, it also weighs 2,751 Attic talents. And those are? An antiquated unit for measuring weight. Can you get any more specific? I feel like those weird old measures are usually for like, like this is the measure we use for apples or this is the measure we use <laughs> for beer. You would use this for a lot of different things, but you would probably be most familiar hearing talents of gold. Mm -hmm. That's what we're talking about here. It's Roman? Uh, Greek. It's changed at various different times, but the Attic talent specifically was a measure set in the Attic region of Greece. <laughs> I can't do it. The nasally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.